We probably should have recorded last week, but I, I, I had stuff to probably. do. And so here we are one week later after you and I saw each other in, in Cupertino for a mysterious, I think it was billed to me as a Mac roundtable. I don't, how how was it billed to you in advance of of our meeting last week? Yeah, but the the future of the Mac or whatever. Yeah. Um. So I went into it uh, with a fifty thinking fifty fifty in my head whether this was going to be. Uh, that's all I knew. It was going to be about the Mac, and it was going to be a roundtable discussion with a couple of executives and a, a handful of of members of the media. Um, mm-hmm. And I went into it thinking, well, this has got to be about the Mac Pro because mm-hmm. it's it's not an event. It's you know the opposite of events. Very small, right? Um, it's and the, the Mac. How can they have something about the Mac and not address the elephant in the room that was the thousand and some day old Mac Pro? So I went into it thinking fifty fifty. This is either going to be good news about the Mac Pro or bad news about the Mac Pro. Like it, right? We're done with the Mac Pro. Or mm-hmm. we're not done with the Mac Pro, but we can't show it yet, and here's why. What were mm-hmm. you? What were you thinking? Yeah, you're probably you're smarter than me. I don't know. I I, I didn't <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't really connect it directly to the Mac Pro, although in you know in hindsight it seems fairly reasonable to do that. Um, I mean, I guess I did a little bit. You know, obviously the Mac Pro is sort of the elephant in the room in a lot of ways uh, for Apple and the Mac. Uh, in the sweep of the Mac universe, um, but I think it's definitely uh, it was definitely an opportunity to say, um, you know, hey, here's some things we're thinking about about the Mac. But it, I mean, it all as you probably picked up on it was it was very odd because you know very rarely, as everybody knows, does Apple actually say, hey, we're going to talk about future things. You know, um, so that aspect of it was confusing to me, and my only my only inkling about that was like, oh, they need to set something up. You know, right? Uh, well, my thinking was that it could be that that would that would be very similar to how they would announce the end of life of the Mac Pro if that had been their decision. That they're, they're not going to hold a product announcement event for a product that's end of life, right? I, and I feel like even if the answer was let's just make Pro quality iMacs when they unveil them on stage. They're not going to want to sully that on stage by saying, "Oh, and remember the Mac Pro." That's we don't need that anymore. Right. Uh, that that they would want to break it in in a non keynote type scenario. Whether it's mm-hmm. a, you know somebody in particular gets an exclusive or a handful of people get an exclusive and get a chance to ask questions about it. I think it would have been mm-hmm. very similar if that had been their decision. And and I think that, you know, obviously the reason why they it, you know, that wasn't the news. The news, in fact, is that they are hard at work on an all new Mac Pro, but because they're so far away from shipping it, uh, which we <laughs> we can get into next mm-hmm. um that they felt like they had to say something they had to they could not just wait and they wanted to i think combined with the fact that they wanted to release speed bumps or or price drops whatever you want to call what it is they've done with the current mac pro last week where they at the same price levels they've they've gone from you know the entry level is no longer four core it's six core and the mid-level one is no longer six core it's eight core or something like that um 
Mm-hmm. If that's all they did is just re- update the store and not say anything about the future, right. I, people would have lost their lost their damn minds. Rightly so. People would have lost their minds. Yeah. Rightly so, because it wouldn't have made any sense that that Apple was pretending that this was normal. Right. It's one of those scenarios where context free, you know, update would have caused many, many more problems than it, you know, solved, I guess is the word. Right. Yeah. And I <laughs> I think that that's unusual, for, an unusual position for them to be in to feel strongly enough about, you know, the future of a particular category for them to set it up or tee it up in that way. Because a lot of times they just sort of take their lumps. Yeah. You know, they'll just they'll just do it and people will misconstrue it or whatever. And then they'll come out with the thing that they it they were teeing up and then either people will like it or they won't, you know. But in this case, I guess they felt strongly enough about how long it had been or how you know, how much culpability they felt, I guess, you know, in in how the thing played out mm. that they felt that they needed to to uh contextualize it. I feel like a, a week later I feel like it, there is no simple answer. I, I I feel like part of it, in terms of you know, I think you <laughs> you answer, you asked the question and you preface it with I don't want to get too personal. <laughs> but the gist of the question was when the hell? Which always means that somebody's about to get personal, right? When did you guys realize you you done fucked up? I mean, that's not what you said, but. We uh, so that for everybody who doesn't have it in top of their minds, it was it was nine of us at the table. It was it was representing Apple was uh, Phil Schiller, uh, Craig Federighi talking software, uh, and John Turnus T E R N U S, who's a vice president of hardware. And and as it was described to us at the beginning of the meeting, on his plate are iPad Pro and Mac Pro, and maybe MacBook Pro. I forget what they said. They did, mm-hmm. but but I know iPad Pro and a couple of others. And I think, uh, and honestly, uh, and he, he was you know had very good things to say at at the roundtable. But uh, just talking to a couple of other people at Apple in the last week after this came out, it sounds to me like he Turnus is a real up and comer at the company. Like I don't think it's the last time that we are going to hear from him in a some sort of you know publicity facing right of, event. It seems to me like he's a real up and comer. Um. And the fact that he's been tasked with, all right, you're going to run point on hardware on this new Mac Pro is is a sign of that. And I think a good sign. I think people mm-hmm. people who are hoping that this Mac Pro is everything Mac Pro users have been hoping for, I think the fact that John Turnus is in charge of it is a very good sign. Um, and then on the press side, it was uh, me and you, uh, Ina, Ina Freed, who was recently of Recode, but is now at a new site called Axios, for those of you who don't follow the comings and goings of the press very closely. Um, uh, John Patchkowski, also recently of Recode, but now at BuzzFeed. And last but not least, um, Lance Ulanoff, who was there from Mashable. So former Recode writers uh, were well represented. Nobody from Recode was there at the moment. It was a large category, percentage-wise. <laughs> yes, of the, of the attendees. forty percent. Forty percent of, of <laughs> press attendees were formerly of Recode, and then last but not least, uh, or maybe possibly least, was was Bill Evans from Apple PR, who was at the table. But as as is Apple PR's want, he was more or less there to play defense and and pretty much just run the clock and and didn't right. really. Um, 
Um, <clears throat> so I, I thought that the, we all tried to ask. I, I would say everybody except Patchkowski, who only pop, piped in at the end with a very well-timed question about the Mac Mini. Um, everybody tried to ask, A, when did you guys figure out that you had a real problem on your hands with the design of the 2013 Trashcan Mac? And B, when did you guys start on this project of a new Mac, you know, a rethought from the ground up Mac Pro? Mm-hmm. And, and Apple does not like to talk about timelines. I mean, that's, I mean, they don't like to talk about future stuff. They don't like to talk about all sorts of things, but they do not like right. to talk about when in the past they made decisions and how long things took. It is mm-hmm. it, more than, almost more than anything else. They don't like to like once a design of a new right. product comes out, they will talk. You know, Johnny Ive will talk at length, openly and honestly, and in, in his little narrated videos about why something is the way it is. Um, they won't tell you in advance, but once it's out, they'll say, "Here's why we have these gently sloped corners here, or um, mm-hmm. or whatever." But in terms of how long they've been working on blank, they just it is it's like the the holiest of holies, the secretest of secrets. And they yeah, I, mean, I think they view that as their as as part of their IP almost because yes. it's part of their process, and so they view that those timelines and the the how long it takes things to get things right or you know what abortive attempts they had at a particular thing or whatever before they settled on the right path they view that all as like a protected category of information that's about their process that's uh, right. part of their secret their special sauce right, um, and so. It, but there were little dribs and drabs that you, going over it, especially after the you know writing my piece all night long, and then and then reading everybody else's the next day, and then having a day to sort of breathe, and then rethink it all, and, and look at the transcript again. Um, I think that the most telling remark was Federighi's saying that they had painted themselves into a thermal corner. And the, mm-hmm. and and combined with his saying that they went through like the stage, you know, it was it said in a jovial fashion, and it did get a laugh that they went through the stages of grief or something like that, right? Um, which to me, reading between the lines, says that they did try to update the Mac Pro at least several times in in between 2013 and the point where they said, okay, we've got to give up on this, and. It seemed like by you know by trying to answer customers' requests for what they wanted from an, a, a newer Mac Pro, it was mostly about more powerful GPUs. But more powerful GPUs threw off the thermal balance of the Mac Pro as we know it, mm-hmm. and that there, you know, and so I who knows? I'm guessing at least at least two years was spent on at some degree trying to update and get more powerful GPUs into that that configuration and at some point they gave up. Mhm. What do you what was your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I mean that's two different questions, right? The timeline is one question. You know, right. how how long do you think it took them and then the other question is did they actually make attempts at it? Or did they go, hey, you know, we really, there's nothing really we can do here because they just knew from all of the, from the building of the thing in the first place, they built it specifically to take advantage of this split or balanced GPU scenario. And, you know, 
shoving one hot GPU and it was never going to work. I don't know. You know, I don't know how much modeling or prototyping or theory, right. you know, work they did on saying, what if we jammed an in- NVIDIA 1080, you know, I in here, uh, TI in here and, and said, can we get this to run in here, you know, in this shell with proper thermal properties or whatever. I don't know how far along that road they went. Or did they just say, well, this is not the purpose we built it for at all. So can we get two GPUs in here that will work together in, in such a way to where it would provide a significant value to our customers? Um, and then they get they said, no. You know, All we can do is give it a bump so that people on this current gen can just roll with it until we get out what's due. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I, I think it's it's hard. It's harder for me to say that they went and and built whole new units in this case than if they were working on a new product, which they would in, undoubtedly do. They'll you know they'll build fully full tilt all produced you know devices if they feel that they need to to figure out whether it works or not um, when they're creating a new product on something like this. I guess maybe. I guess maybe they did. They would. You know. I have no information. I'm just trying to like yeah. divine from what I know about the process that they go right. through. But it seems like it seems like it's a possibility. One thing we don't have to speculate on. I mean, this is just a fact. It's obvious just by studying the device and it's also obvious just listening to the way Apple described it in 2013 when it when it was announced is that the the trash can Mac Pro from 2013 was a bet on multi-threaded GPUs as the future of GPU power. Mm-hmm. And and they had a software story to tell about it. I think, you know, without getting too complicated, I think it was mostly sort of an open CL type thing. But in the meantime, in the years since, Apple has sort of stepped away from open CL. And I think the bigger story isn't even really Apple's own decisions on software, but more just where did the industry go? And in the pro market, it's not so dependent on or defined by Apple in terms of how should you make software for the Mac Pro, but more this is how industry standard powerful GPU hogging apps are written. You know, things like Mm. video Mm -hmm. editing and 3D um, which a lot of it is cross-platform. Probably most of it is cross-platform. Um, and it's the way that that's gone in the four years since the, we first saw this Mac Pro, it's gotten ever more dependent on super powerful single GPUs, which is the, mm-hmm. the opposite of where the Mac Pro went. I think in theory, right. in theory, the Mac Pro could have been the future of pro computing. Uh, the sort of throwing lots of GPU cores and having software written to take advantage of that. Um, but that's just not where the industry went. And with the software that is ever more dependent on just single threaded GPU performance, the Mac pro is just, it, it just wasn't apt at all. You know what I keep going back to <laughs> is this. So I, um, you know, I grew up building computers. I guess a lot of, a lot of folks, who are probably listening to this did, you know, or, or grew up at least very interested in how they were put together. Um, and I, I think my, you know, my first computer was like an Amiga that I pieced together out of, you know, rando parts, um, from a friend's stores of garbage because his dad worked for Pacific Bell and then so on and so forth spiraled outwards from there to PCs and, you know, x86 machines and, um, 
you know, on on through the Windows train or DOS train and then Windows train and all that, simply because I it was the thing that I could afford and I could put together myself. Uh, somewhere along the line, along the line there, I developed like this parallel track with uh, starting with the Performa line. Uh, and going, uh, you know, up through there, where I always had a Mac in the house as well. And then my mom would use it. I would use it for graphic design and like eventually Photoshop stuff once they became more powerful. Uh, and and you know, a variety of other things. But so I always had like this parallel track of computing. But I spent the majority of my time on PCs simply because they were great for gaming. And I was a, just a you know massive gamer, and you know still am to a degree. But the platform itself was obviously you know, very much pushed forward by gamers. You know, there were other industries that were responsible for pushing certain components of the computer, you know, of the right. p- of the CPU or the GPU or whatever forward, depending on their needs, their specific needs. Obviously, you know, data storage is very much like an enterprise thing and, you know, so on and so forth. But the the GPU and CPU were pushed very hard for a lot of years by gaming and still are. You know, I mean, obviously, GPUs are where they are because of gamers. Yep. They're not there because of, you know, sure, academics at some you know stage do need those, but only because it was there. It was sort of like a chicken egg thing, yep. and they, it was the academics use heavily, you know, GPU centric computing uh, platforms and things now because they can, and they're the but the GPUs are there because the gamers wanted them and the game companies pushed them hard. I mean, I remember playing games that they said, "Hey, this game looks this good this year, but it'll look even better next year." Right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Like we've already programmed in, you know, the lar- the higher uh, yeah. higher resolution textures and so on and so forth that we in better physics engines that we know will only your computer will only support next year. I was, so it was that constant thing. I was know, never of much of a, forward. I was never much of a gamer, but I, when, I, when I was you know twenty years ago, I was much closer to a gamer than I am now. And I I remember that even on the Mac that was true that uh, mm-hmm. you know Marathon was the big game. That's right. The, the, right. The, yeah, Bungie. The, the you know Bungie's wasn't their first game, but it was the first real smash hit and sort of a predecessor mm-hmm. to uh, uh, what's the game on Xbox? Uh, Halo. Halo. Um, Marathon was huge, and and it was networked, so we could play it against each other. Um, yeah, love that game. You had to be on a local talk network, though. You couldn't. <laughs> this is no. how old I yeah. am. You couldn't play over the internet. You had to <laughs> no, all be no, in the same room. Not. So yeah, we, we played we played that, and then we played uh, Doom locally, and. Yeah. Duke Nukem 3D, all this stuff. Yeah, me, but, me, yeah I mean, you get that, and that's what drove it. You know, well, that's what was, what, a, that's what what was amazing. From. What was amazing, though, is that we'd get a new computer at the student newspaper. We'd, you know, get a new mm-hmm. Quadra or something, and all of a sudden, Marathon ran way better. And it was like, whoa. <laughs> uh, right. I remember, too, a lot of times, too, it was frame rate, right? Like, you could, and, you yeah. know, and, yeah. and certain games had settings where you could optimize for frame rate or optimize for graphics, but you could get the, you could get the good graphics, but you wouldn't get a great frame rate. And then all of a sudden you get a new computer and you get it all. Um, and sure. it would be night and day. You could run like, dark forces and everything was all smooth all of a sudden. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it's but, true. I, I think mean, that, you're right. That's what I the look money, at. That's the, the allegory, money, you know. The money comes from gamers. That's that's what's driving the industry to to keep pumping right. the billions of dollars into research into ever more powerful GPUs. And then, like you said, like things like academics who are really just running math, just math mm-hmm. or data analysis. It really aren't even pushing pixels to a screen. They're literally just chewing through mounds and mounds of of quote unquote big data. But you can do it where the 
the algorithms run faster on a GPU than a CPU, and they're taking advantage mm-hmm. of technology that was developed for games. And and the right. Mac Pro just was it just was not where the industry was headed. And no matter no, how I big mean, it, no gamer ever looked at the Mac Pro and thought, "Oh, this is interesting." And heck, they they barely looked at the previous generation of Mac Pros that way because they knew that they would be upgrading their GPU within six to nine months to 12 months, right? right. And that they would be pushing, you know, looking for that. Right. And they didn't have the confidence that AMD or NVIDIA would consistently release that highest, you know, highest performance graphics card for the the Mac Pro uh, in, that, in that original configuration, much less the new one, obviously, where Apple's the one who controls that. Yeah. So what occurs to me in looking at this scenario, and, and I mean, it's not just in the last week, but I think having learned now what we now know, I think it's almost certain is that there's at least a little bit of hubris here in the design of the 2013 Mac Pro that I think is fueled by the iPhone and iPad, where with the iPhone, Apple, the iPhone market in and of itself is so big and so lucrative and that Apple can define the computer architecture of the iPhone and can define the APIs for creating software for it and runs the App Store and can, you know, it, 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 not really adhere to, you know, define which APIs you use, but sort of make sure that your software is, is you know, it, it, within the lines of how they want software written. Mm-hmm. Um, but primarily, just by being able to disc- define the hardware, they can define if you want your software to run well, you're going to have to do it the way we envision you doing it. Whether you know, right. it's not even so much the app store. Forget the app store part. It's just you, you've got to take advantage of the way the iPhone is architected, and the iPhone is so big that developers will do it. I mean, literally, they even, you know, and this is less of a big deal today or, or e- more easily overlooked because it's always been the case. But in the early years of the iPhone, it was a big deal where an awful lot of developers who were like, well, I want, we want our software on the iPhone. We're buying their first Macs ever because you had to run Xcode to write, you still have to run Xcode to write iPhone software and Xcode only runs on a Mac. And so it was mm-hmm. literally, developers were buying an all, all new machine just to do it. Whereas in the pro um, high performance computing industry, Apple doesn't have that sort of dominant role. They can't redefine or not, maybe not redefine is too strong a word, but they can't steer, they couldn't push the industry to switch to a multi threaded GPU model mm-hmm. when everybody else, you know, more or less what Apple needed to do was be humble about it and go with the flow of the industry, which is big, hunk, and single. GPUs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there was two. So twice, I think it was twice. I mean, don't don't at me or whatever. But I think twice during the interview, they he, they said something about you know we want to make sure that whatever we do is new and innovative. And I, I looked at, I thought about that, and I'm, I was thinking about that during you know when they said it because they said it again, and when they said it again, I kind of my ears kind of perked up, you know, um, because I think that that is there's two ways to take that statement. You could take that statement and say, "Hey, I'm doing something new and innovative," and you can you could just take it at face value and go, "You know what? Great. I'm glad someone is right. I'm glad somebody cares enough to really push and make sure that they're not obeying 
accepted norms without questioning them, uh, that they are truly pushing boundaries and and questioning all of the underpinnings of computing and making sure that the way things are done is actually the right way and the way they should be done. Uh, all of that, right? And you know, you can extrapolate. Keep you can keep going from there. All, all of the things that you would like to 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 say to interpret that in the best light possible. And then there's another way to take it, which is we are so interested in doing something new and innovative that we overlook the obvious hurdles because we are so addicted to the slash and burn of, you know, obeying our own recognizance, right? Mm. Or, or, or re- relying on our own recognizance to, to chart the course of computing. Because if you go, hey, every phone, let's apply this to existing, you know, let's apply this to existing um, framework of the iPhone. You look at the iPhone, you go, hey, if you just said, Look, guys, you can do every other thing, but keyboards are great. You know, <laughs> keyboards are fantastic. They're fun. They work fine. You know, thumbs, press keys makes total sense, right? We were, since we were cavemen, we've been manipulating things with our opposable thumbs. Why stop now? I mean, there's plenty of really great arguments that a lot of people made to themselves and really convinced themselves were right. And that's why there was a lot of blowback against the no physical keyboard thing. So Apple in that moment, you know, maybe this is Steve's genius of saying, no, this is the right way. Or maybe this is a collective genius, which is more likely, where Steve acts as the editor for a lot of people's flurry of ideas. Yeah, I think we can make this work. And, you know, it's so so much simpler, less moving parts and blah, blah, blah. Tons of arguments on the other side, right? And they made a decision to, to slice out a very well-established, charted course of having that physical keyboard that was not necessarily evil, right? There's nothing bad about it. Right. It's just... They, it, they saw pathways that opened up for themselves if they got rid of it. They're like, man, then we can manipulate the whole screen. The keyboard can go away when you don't need it, you know, blah, 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 right? You know, all of the arguments that we all know so well. But you look at that and it worked out incredibly well for them. And in fact, not only was it, did it work out well for them, it was the right thing to do. That's why all our phones look the same now, right? right? But in this case, I think they looked at the problem and said, hey, this is the way it could go. This parallel GPU that splits tasks. It can run lower power when it needs to. Um, you know, it's very, you know, power conscious, which is great for the environment, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and there's really no reason that it needs to be blowing all this air all over the place all the time and collecting all this unseemly dust. And why has nobody ever thought of this? And they got so excited about the fact that they could do this thing that they didn't stop and ask themselves, well, is the simpler, straighter, you know, more common path, is it a common path for a reason? Like, do we use metal because metal is good, you know? Mm-hmm. Or do we use a strong, powerful GPU because the industry that we have traditionally not served, gaming industry, uses it and and that pushes everything forward and we can ride that wave? Like, why why paddle out of the current, Right. And, and generate all of the force on your own when you can use additive force on the existing current and go, you know what? This is fine. These, this is our limitation that we have to accommodate this graphics card. Now, what does that look like? Maybe it's a flat slab with almost nothing else to it that's hmm. essentially a GPU, you know, or maybe it's external GPUs or whatever. But I just think that they're, like, the questions got asked and they applied roughly the same frameworks to it that they did with the iPhone and ended up with just the wrong answer. 
Yeah. And I don't know why that is. I'm, I don't presuppose I'm dumb compared to all these guys they have and girls they have working on these problems. So, you know, I don't presuppose to know. That's just my supposition as to how the argument went down, you know? Yeah. Um, and one factor, I guess I knew this, but it got reiterated a few times, is that the, the Mac Pro had a sort of triangular shape in the tube in the middle, the hollow center, two GPUs right. and, a GP, and a CPU. And it's not just that it was three things and that air flowed through the center to cool them, but that it was specifically designed that all three sides of that triangle would remain roughly on par with each other in terms of the heat that needed to be dissipated. And it wasn't a design that would accommodate one of the three sides getting hotter than the others. And that's, mm-hmm. again, with software that more so now than before the this Mac Pro was distributed, that in intensive graphics intensive software today is about overloading a single GPU with as much performance as you can get. And it just, you know, so even using this configuration to run software that's meant to run single threaded on a GPU, it's just not conducive to that because you can't let one of the GPUs get hotter than another. And it probably plays into the fact that the, Mac Pro, as we know it, is sort of notorious for um, almost like like a European sports car that they they're not the most rugged machines or dur- durable machines in terms of uh, reliability over the years. That people who've been pushing these machines, there's a lot of people who have, you know they they seemingly anecdotally at least have to go in to get GPUs replaced pretty frequently, mm, primarily mm-hmm. from overheating. I mean, that's the only way right. really a, a computer part wears out or it's part like a GPU could wear out. All right, let me take a break and we'll come back sure. to this. And But let me first thank our, our first sponsor of this show, Circle from Disney. What is Circle? Circle from Disney is a beautiful little device designed for families to manage content and time online for all the devices in your home. It pairs with just about any Wi-Fi router, and it recognizes every device connected to it, tablets, PCs, smartphones, even Chromebooks, anything that connects to the Wi-Fi in your house, it'll recognize it. And then parents can set profiles for each member of the family and tailor the individual preferences for each one. It's very easy to set up. It is exactly what you would think of from something from Disney. It is not like setting up uh, uh, something from Cisco (laughs) where you need a network (laughs) engineering degree. It is very much what you would think Disney would design for non- network engineering moms and dads uh you just download the app choose your network it's that simple you go from there and just tap things on the app uh what kind of things does it let you do it lets you filter content customize what's available and you can set time limits and you can set the time limits on specific things like youtube minecraft facebook netflix and even snapchat kids staying up late on their tablet you can set a bedtime for each kid and their devices Families can also see how they spend their time online with their insights feature. It's really great. Um, Disney is super stoked about this. They've just, well, number, a couple of new things. They just launched a new thing about a month ago. It's called Circle Connections. It lets you connect apps, services, and devices like friend of the show, automatic, you know, the car dingus. Well, now you can hook that up and the family can uh, share stuff like that through the Circle. Uh, Alexa, IFTTT, Chore Monster. And others, you can all hook up to your circle. It's sort of turning into a platform. Uh, Disney is very excited about this. 
recently, Apple's CFO, Luca Maestri, was uh, uh, held a meeting with the Italian press at the Italian consulate in New York City, and he was talking about how his family uses Apple products and devices, and he specifically mentioned Circle with Disney, something that his family uses to manage his family's devices. I will put a link to this in the show notes. Uh, I think you're going to need to translate it from Italian, but that's okay. I'm sure most people who listen to the show speak fluent Italian. Um, but that's a pretty cool story, and a pretty you don't really hear uh, Disney or Apple C-level executives talking up products from other companies all that often. So anyway, it's very exciting stuff. Where do you go to find out more? Easy. Go to meetcircle, M-E-E-T circle.com. And remember this code, the talk show, and you will get free shipping and $10 off your circle with Disney device. Uh, it's a $99 product, 89 bucks with the talk show code. Uh, and circle go, which is their service for mobile, like a phone, like cellular service is uh, $9 and 95 cents a month for up to 10 devices, iOS only but that's probably not a problem for listeners of the talk show. So my thanks to Disney meetcircle.com code, the talk show. Great product. So timeline wise, more spec. Here's, here's my take. My take is that in the 20, I mean, cause one thing a couple people have observed is it's not like this is the first Mac pro that went a long time between updates. The Mac pro had sort of mm -hmm. been on a longer than one year update schedule for a while. So the fact that there wasn't an update in 2014, I don't think struck, I don't think it really surprised anybody. Um, right. My guess is sometime around 2015, 2016 is when an update, certainly by 2016, it was, everybody was talking about it and certainly Apple was aware of it. I think, I don't know this, I don't have any sort of, in, you know, super sources inside, but I think, and I don't, I don't think anybody's surprised by this. I, I think that, as as the around 2015 2016 as it became more obvious that the design of the Mac Pro was problematic i think there was a sense within apple that maybe that's okay and maybe macbook pros combined with ever more powerful iMacs might be the way future to satisfy the pro users of the mac market mm -hmm. and, and I think, and, and I think this came up at our at our interview last week. And I think that they sort of emphasized just but we what need a, more, so to speak. What just what a large percentage of their what they define as pro users are using MacBook mm. Pros and iMacs. Mm -hmm. uh, and they even mentioned this. And if anything, this might have been the most surprising part of the meeting is where they they mentioned specifically that they have new iMacs in the pipeline that are coming slated for sometime this year um, that are including configurations that are that are geared towards pro customers. Um, I think that what happened is that probably at a very high level, I mean, I'm not naming names, I don't know, but I think at a pretty high level within the company, they talk themselves into believing that the iMac, including ever better iMacs combined with the MacBook Pros could cover everything they needed to cover. And I think at some point recently, let's say within the last six months or so, maybe a little more, uh, they realized, no, that's that the 1% of Mac users who can't be satisfied by an iMac 
need a, a, a real pro computer. That's my guess. Yeah. I mean, I think you're, I think you're probably right. If that sounds, that sounds reasonable. I, I definitely think there was that moment, uh, which they alluded to because they said, but we realized we needed more, um, that they did feel that a larger and larger segment of the pro market was being served by a 5k screen and a computer slept on the back. Um, and, you know, I certainly, it's what I've been using for a long time. I haven't had a Mac Pro in years. And I only had one briefly. And honestly, a lot of the times that I ran Mac Pro level machines on, you know, with OS ten running on them, I ran Hackintoshes for that GPU reason. Yeah. You know, and, and Hackintoshes are becoming a much more, I don't doubt that Apple sees this. Right. You know, the diagnostics probably tell them. Um, you know, general opt-in diagnostics probably tell them, if not pulling the community. But there are an increasing number of people running Hackintoshes, uh, which are, you know, PC components that have OS ten driver support uh, or have, you know, some sort of crib together driver support uh, and that are that are being put together and then you boot OS ten on them either with the use of a bootloader, piece of software, or a piece of hardware that allows you to boot OS ten fool OS ten into thinking that you're running a Mac. Right. And the advantage that offers is of course you can build according to your precise power needs, perhaps even more powerful than is currently on the market, which is a situation we're in right now with the Mac Pro. Um, and then of course you can, you know, you can run Windows on a Mac, but now you can run Windows on a more powerful Mac that can then run very high performance games or other applications. And so you'll you'll see people like um who was it that recently wrote a a, a fairly solid, you know, kind of what it's like to build a Hackintosh right now just recently. It was uh Was it Mike Rundle? Is that who you're thinking I think of? Was, I think Mike was mentioning, was talking about running a Hackintosh, but somebody else just wrote a piece that was traded around a lot. I mean, you know, many folks have over the years. Uh, they build uh, they build graphic software for the Mac. Um, and it's not... My brain's blanking. I'll try and get back to it if I can. But the the gist of it is is like best of both worlds scenario. Where they they love OS ten and they just they shudder using Windows. They'd use it when they they need to 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 make it through, you know, uh, or to to run software that only runs on Windows, aka you know, uh, class A games that just don't ship on multiple platforms. Although Steam is making that better to a degree, uh, but the OS ten is just you know the beautiful experience and all that, and they can build this really custom experience underneath it. And I think that that more people being willing to consider a Hackintosh and that the community really looking to those um, builders to, to try and tell them exactly what parts to buy and you know how, exactly how to build it and all of that. I think that really speaks to this desire to have OS X, but with a more customizable hardware platform underneath it. Not just more powerful with a capital P, but also more customizable, truly modular. You're right. That right. truly modular experience that people haven't had in in many years. So even though they appreciate the design and the thoughtfulness that went into the Mac Pro as it currently exists, I think many people feel that those choices being made for them stands out as an even more irritating decision because of the segment that they're going after. Like how many iMac users? I mean, well, scratch that. There are plenty. <laughs> like Mac, Mac, Apple users love to complain because they're so attuned to detail, 
right? The company has taught them to be picky about their stuff. That's why they're that's the base reason that the Mac community, the Apple community is so picky about stuff because right. they've been trained to care, right? Um, by a company that ostensibly cares. So, but scratching that, uh, setting that aside, the average Mac user, the 80%, let's call it, of the Mac users out there who are, who are like, hey, I just want to, I mean, a big computer for my desk and I, I love Apple stuff. What, what do I get that's not a portable? Oh, we buy an iMac, right? The vast majority of those are not going crazy about like, oh, I can't, you know, change this particular chipset, right? Or whatever. Like, I can't get this network card instead of this network card or whatever. But the segment that they did it to was the one that was going to be the most allergic to it Hmm. in the long run. And like, that is another thing that was kind of weird to me. Why, you know, I wonder if there was, I mean, I'm sure there was an advocate inside saying, this is great, but it actually, something like the Mac Pro, imagine if that was the iMac. Now, these days, I think the iMac is the right choice. People just buy one thing and they're done. Nobody buys, you know, nobody wants to buy separate monitors. They do it because they have to, right? Like the average person. So I think the iMac is the right configuration. I'm not trying to say that the Mac Pro is right for the normal, normal person, but that segment of the market would have been much more receptive and, and welcoming, I think, of a thing where it's like, don't worry about it. We thought it all out. Right. right, we got we've got the perfect sweet capsule for you that's going to do amazing things performance wise. Totally enough for you. Plop this on your desk and plug it in and enjoy. And that segment, I think, is much more receptive and welcoming of that. Whereas the pro segment is the opposite. The first thing they do is refresh the iFixit page so they see how things tear down and they want to know what's in there and all of that. And they want to be informed consumers. And I think that that leads itself to to the desire to have choice and all that stuff. I don't know. It's just the way I see that. They just sort of pitched it to the wrong people. Yeah. I I think that there's a a continuum of of everything, but there's a continuum of people's price sensitivity. Um, Hmm. But I think that at a certain end, if you talk about like college-age students who want a Mac for gaming uh, and what type, or, or want a computer that can dual boot but use a Mac, but have a powerful GPU for gaming are gonna are more willing to spend the time to do the hackintosh and to put up with the incompatibilities and the worries about applying software updates and you know maybe wait until somebody else decides whether this graphics card is going to work with the latest version of Sierra uh, and all of that mm-hmm. versus the professional market where price isn't really the issue. It's they're they're begging Apple to charge them a lot of money for a computer. And part of what they're willing to spend money for is the it just works factor of getting a real Mac. Mm-hmm. And and the Hackintosh, I, I, like I can see why the Hackintosh route is more popular than it, growing in popularity given the Mac Pro stagnation. But I think it's a large part of that. I mean, and, and clearly, like I said, it's a continuum and there's obvious exceptions. There might be real professional users. There certainly are some who are doing it. But I think for the most part, a real professional user who, who might be willing to spend you know, $10,000 or $15,000 on a, on a workstation isn't going to do it with an unsupported drivers and an unsupported configuration. Like they're, going, they're the type of people who are like, if I, if I can't get hardware from Apple that meets my needs, I'd rather switch to Windows and get a supported configuration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas the hobbyist yeah, community, I think that's totally right. the hobbyist community has always, by definition, been self-supporting. They don't need support yeah. because yeah, they yeah. are their own support. 
Yeah. And whatever configuration they're coming up with, they're getting live, essentially live tech support on it from the community that they're in of those similar people that build those things. Hey, has anybody ever come across this problem? You know, I, I did it a bunch of times when I was building Hackintoshes where it's like, you know, cause I was just too poor to own a, a really powerful Mac. And so I would just build out of PC parts and then run OS 10 on it. And, you know, I'm sure Apple's cringing and whatever, but you know, it's what I could afford. And I think a lot of people start out that way. You know, those price sensitive people, but that are also, you know, sort of hacker friendly or whatever you want to call it, who don't mind uh, instability and dinking around because they just lust after the OS X experience and the Apple ecosystem and all of that. Um, but I think that there's, there's like, <laughs> it's sort of like a, like an entry point for eventual Mac Pro owners, right? Mm. And so either it's, I know there are other entry points, right? You you go to a company and you become a designer and all this, and the company has a corporate budget, and what are you going to buy, right? You're going to get your Mac Pro. You're going to be a designer with capital D and, and do all your design work, and that's great. But I think there's a long tail of people out there that are that become pros through alternative pathways, don't have a lot of money to spend, want to get into the ecosystem because they, once again, they, they love the fact that the company... Um, prioritizes design and prioritizes uh, care and all of that in, in their software. And they know in the end, underneath it, you know, the hardware that it runs isn't perhaps as carefully picked and chosen as something Apple would do, <laughs> but they can get it to run, right? It's right. just a mishmash of junk, but right. it sort of runs and you get it running and you feel good about it um, and you get it hooked on the ecosystem. Which is why I always thought that like every once in a while Apple will take a stab at like trying to shut down Hackintosh projects and things like that. And I was always just like, let it ride. I mean, if it becomes like a major component of of your 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 business being stolen, I guess you gotta take some legal and there's also some legal things you have to plant because of trademarks and all that, so that you can you can have a future court case against Samsung and say, Oh yeah, we tried to protect it back then, even with little people. Um so I get the legal precedent thing. But it's also just like, let it ride, because it's like the low simmering entry point to somebody who eventually, once they have the means, is like, yes, build me an amazing Mac, please, Apple, and I, you know, a powerful Mac Pro, and I will buy it. You know, yeah. now I have the means, I'm addicted, I want the power, but I also want OS ten, and so on, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's the way, that's the way, I, oh, I found that, the Hackintosh article, by the way, it was okay. by Dan Council. Oh, paste, um, it, paste it in the yeah, uh, I'll, chat here. I'll send you the link, yeah, it's... Uh, Dan Dan Council of Real Mac, um, you know Real Mac software makes yeah. lots of great lots of great apps. Um, this is not an ad, etc. But um, he wrote a, an article called "Building a Hackintosh Pro," um, you know, a little earlier um, back in March. Um, but it's you know it's his reasoning was essentially they haven't updated the Mac Pro. You know, I need right. a full size graphics card for the stuff that I want to do, and so it's not it's not complicated. You know, it's not like anybody's angry. Um, well, I mean, I'm sure some people are angry, but it's not like anybody's really, you know, thinking Apple is is doing things that are are consumer hostile on purpose. It's just that there are certain needs and wants they have, and Apple didn't glom onto those needs and wants or assign enough importance to them soon enough to catch themselves, so they didn't have this big gap now. Yeah, uh, I think you know. Bottom line, I, I don't really see how this. Well, I'm sure someone at Apple could deny it, but I think it seems pretty clear now that at at some point in the last three years or so, 
or maybe starting around three years ago, that Apple sort of took its collective eye off the ball on the Mac, at least on mm-hmm. the hardware. I think the software is is going fine. I think it. I think they're hitting their annual release dates. I think that they're solid. I think they're doing enough cool new things that are very useful, like this the continuity stuff I use every day, and I just think like, how the hell did I ever? go from have my these links on my iPhone and then switch to another computer to look at them there uh before this stuff worked um some great features uh I don't think that they should be radically you know I think that the complaint some people have about the Mac is that they haven't done anything that's like a here's the radical new way to use a Mac I don't want that I don't I mean obviously if they mm-hmm. came up with something that I liked I guess I'd like it but I I I kind of feel like they've they've you know that's what new products are for, right? That's why the iPad is a different right. product. Like, here's a radical new way to do personal computing on a portable device. I still want to do the stuff that the Mac is great at on the Mac. Um, Hardware-wise, though, I think it's hard to deny that they kind of took their eye off the ball. And I think part of this uh, sort of let's hit the reset button mindset is that reaction to the MacBook Pros last fall, I think, was mixed. I don't think it's fair to say it was a poor reaction, but I do think it was a mixed reaction and I think that took Apple by surprise. I think Apple internally thought they had a smash hit on their hands and was sort mm-hmm. of taken aback by the number of people who expressed displeasure at mm. the the decisions they made with the MacBook Pro. And during our discussions, Schiller had during his opening remarks addressed it, you know, in his usual way where it wasn't quite head on, but it was clear what he, you know, he mentioned him and said that they're hard at work on on you know, a next group of MacBook Pros that would address specifically address some of the complaints professional users had about the the current ones. Mhm. Although he didn't say any of things of what those are. But I would presume, right. or maybe he mentioned RAM. Did he mention RAM? I mean, one of the complaints people have about the the current MacBook Pros is that there's still the maximum amount of RAM you can put in them is 16 gigabytes. And the reason it's not 32 gigabytes is because Apple is using, I, I, I don't, don't have to write me to tell me, but they're using DDR whatever low energy RAM. And mm-hmm. on the current Intel chipsets, if you're using the the kind of low energy battery saving RAM that Apple wants to use to keep battery life good, the maximum you can get is 16. So mm-hmm. they could, in mm-hmm. theory, have MacBook Pros that have 32 gigabytes, but it would involve a complete rearchitecture of which Intel chipset they're using. And and to ship them last year, they would have not been able to use the low energy RAM. And you know, we went through this when the MacBook Pros came out, and the answer from the people who are RAM-starved in their professional work, who really mm-hmm. need more than 16, or at least want, if not needs, more than 16 gigabytes of RAM, is, I don't care about the low energy, I'll plug the goddamn thing in, I I just right. want 32 gigabytes of RAM, which is a completely reasonable trade-off. It is completely reasonable for a... a, a a Mac user who gets the Mac and loves the Mac. It's not like, oh, if you were a real Mac user, you'd see the genius of Apple's decision in this regard. I could totally see how there are totally, you know, long-time diehard Mac users who get and love the Mac who are willing to say, I would rather get eight hours of battery life instead of 10 if I could get 32 gigabytes of RAM in this machine instead of 16. Mm-hmm. Totally reasonable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the number of people who took that stance though took Apple by surprise. I mean, not and right. it's not that RAM is the only issue, it, it, you know, that the complaint that people have about the MacBook Pros. 
but it, yeah, yeah. Well, and then and then so there's two two things that I think that are important to touch on. I think the touch thing we should talk about because I think that's a very interesting. You mentioned iPad, yeah. But the other branch of that discussion is you mentioned how many people it took them by surprise. You know how many people did that? So it, it sort of begs the question: like, why did it take them by surprise? You know, right? Like, why why did it sneak up on them, so to speak? Well, like and I, I said, think, a best phrase I can come up with is that they took their eye off the ball a bit and yeah. and sort of got a little too insular. I mean, I think it's often the biggest risk to Apple is that they're so insular as a culture that they they can lose sight, even if they think they're keeping track of the community. And, and they certainly, I think they certainly try to, but I think that they could talk themselves into... Uh, just taking their eye off the ball, specifically taking their eye off the ball of the needs of larger chunks of their of their users. That's what I think mm-hmm. they took their eye off the ball on. And I think that there are so many things to really love about the new MacBook Pro that I think that they I think that they somehow got caught up loving the things there are to love about them and lost sight of the ways that it was falling short of their their profession some of their professionals' needs. Mm-hmm. What were you going to say about touch in that regard? So the the thing that they mentioned essentially was if you want touch, buy an iPad and use it together. Mm. And we're going to work on ways to make those work better to, or think about ways to make those work better together or whatever, which says to me that they want, they not want, this is not the primary purpose of it, but that an iPad Pro, you know, they want it to act like a Cintiq tablet mm. yeah. of sorts uh, that connects to a Mac Pro or iMac, or whatever, in a more seamless fashion, which makes a hell of a ton of sense. Because the, the, you know, the pen tracking and things like that, Apple feels is superior to things like the Surface Studio, and the, even though, I mean, they, the Cintiq's quite obvious, you know, the, the Cintiq tablets, which are made by Wacom, are sort of like the de facto industry standard. You know, any designer that, that earns enough money to spend, you know, $1,500, $2,000 on it, um, is basically they're buying a PC with a touch screen glued to the front of it, and right. they lay it flat. If you're not a designer, you know they lay it flat, and then use a stylus directly on it, therefore directly drawing the line on the screen. It was like an iPad Pro before an iPad Pro. I guess right. I don't know. It's just, just to analogize it through a backwards lens. Um, but the Cintiqs for many years ruled the roost right. from with designers, and now I I have this. You know, I'm sure you do too, but just because I do happen to deal a lot in Apple stuff, when I'm looking at pictures, uh, even in completely unrelated, you know, articles or 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 media, um, looking at desks, I always look at desks, right? And workspaces. I'm fascinated with workspaces, you know, from machinists to to designers to you know anything else. I think there's a lot of fascination with a lot of fascinating things to learn about a person by the way that they handle their workspace, how messy it is or how clean it is, neither of which are bad necessarily. It's just the person, right? It's how they well, you, move through life. You you made a keen observation last week and when because our meeting was held in in what they call the the machine shop, but it's their design realization lab where they right. take designs that I guess are like CAD or just prototypes and that it's a machine shop where they take ideas for designs and try to turn them into as realistic and as realistic an approximation of what it would actually be like as a real Apple project as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Yeah, and I got the feeling that a lot of that stuff was just so that they could wing it around and hold it and yep. open and close it, open and close it, open and close it, and you know, see how a human like, oh, oh, this feels really awkward now that I hold it. Make you know? it as real and, as possible. Yeah. But you made the yeah. keen observation that uh, uh, looking around and and they had a lot some stuff covered with black drapes, and they obviously had shut down for the day. They said ordinarily this is a very no- noisy facility for obvious reasons. Right. Um, but you made the keen observation. I thought of that you could kind of see that there were that some of the benches and stuff and the machines were from different people who work there because they were set up in very different ways. You know, that there's somebody who works at this spot and that the person who works right across this aisle from them is a different person because their, their tools were laid out in a different way. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm hypersensitive to that. I came from my grandfather was a machinist and my dad is, uh, you know, was a, is a craftsman. Uh, he's a painter, fine art painter now, but he for many years was and, and still does works on cars and all kinds of other stuff. Got the same inclination, obviously, from his dad. I mean, I'm I'm a dummy when it comes to that stuff. I just I can get my way around. But their workspace is always fascinated with me with the like my grandfather had uh, a, you know, I don't know what you call it, a, a a cabinet or whatever, which was he built himself because he's a machinist, so he worked in wood as well. Uh, and wood was like butter to him after working on you know aircraft parts all day. And so he built like this cabinet with these wooden drawers. And there was maybe, I don't know, 50 or 60 wooden drawers. And each one had a different kind of thing in it. Oh. Like, you know, you go like, oh, I need a washer, like a split lock washer. And he's like, oh, uh, right here, right? And you look in and there's a bunch of split wa- lock washers and they're not new. Right. They're reclaimed, right? They're like, <laughs> they got a little bit of oil and grit on them, but they're fine, right? They're fine. And, you know, he puts them back there and that way you know, like, hey, I got to fix this thing under the sink or whatever. He came from that generation where it's like, right. I'm going to fix this thing. I'm going to go out, pull out a drawer, grab this thing and put it in. I'm not going to go to the store and buy a whole new faucet. You know, and he's not, and he's, and he's also not going to jury rig it with with an ill fitting part and just no. sort of no, you no, know, no. strap it together <laughs> with a rag to stop yeah. the dripping. He's going to have yeah. the exact washer that you need to make yes. a complete, you know, make the right fit right there. Right, exactly, and the same thing with the tools. You know, all of the like a punch or a mm-hmm. or a, a pair of pliers or a clamp or anything like that. It's all all laid out, all kind of had its own place, used, worn, grimy, whatever, but there, right, right. and organized in some way to according to his brain. And I just saw that reflected on the workspaces. And I'm not like, you know, this is the same in machine shops around the world. So I'm not trying to say that Apple is some sort of you know crazy special place. I just found it really nice to see because it says hey these are craftsmen a lot of people think about this like johnny designs it and some thing prints it out you know overseas and that's it but you know i think that is it is very important for us to remember that as you know steve said these are you know the world is made up of people who are no smarter than you, then they made all these things, you know? All it, all it is is they applied themselves, you know, and they put the effort into learning how to do this. And so you see those wooden work boxes there with the their measuring tools and punches and filing tools and those things all laid out in different bits for their CNC machines, for the cutting machines, and all of that stuff laid out. And you could tell, like, a, a man or woman works here. You know, yeah. and they their personality live is on in this the bench. space. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, while the machines themselves may have the overall personality of somebody, you know, the, a lot of man hours and and woman hours, whatever you want to call it, I hate that term, man hours. Um, but they they went into it, 
and they, it definitely ref, was reflected in the workspaces, you know, which I found compelling. But anyway, I digress. But like th- from the workspaces thing, I'm seeing more and more, more and more designers' workspaces, they'll have whatever computer, a Mac or a PC or whatever. Invariably, though, iPad Pro and a pencil. Hmm. Like, everywhere. Like, I was reading an article about Nike the other day, designing some shoe, because I'm a shoe fanatic. And on the table, in the background, <laughs> iPad Pro and a pencil, right? And I think it's sort of gaining a lot of traction in that industry uh, and in that field. And and Apple sees this as an opening for them to go, hey, we can serve these customers who have traditionally v- been very Apple-centric, and we can hopefully not lose them, but at the same time, hold to our beliefs, which i from their discussion during our our talk there, they still very strongly believe that touch is, does not belong on that huge mo- vertical monitor. Right. You know, uh, and so this is a way that they can sort of serve both of those. Well, and th- as Craig joked, you know, also allows them to sell more products. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they do, and they're very upfront about that. That they like it when people yeah. <laughs> buy lots of Apple products. Uh, this the person who is a recent iPad convert because of the iPad Pro and Pencil, who I found fascinating, and it was exactly what I suspected, is uh, Jonathan Heffler of Heffler & Company, the, oh, sure. the typographers, and mm-hmm. uh, friend of the show, uh, icon designer, icon artist, and and graphic designer, illustrator extraordinaire, Louis Mancha, um, is getting into creating his own typefaces. Uh, and it's like, just like any super artistic art, art, person it's it's not like you know he's so talented i mean he can draw illustrations he can make icons he can do logos and he's drawing Mm -hmm. typefaces um and put one up like a a A through z specimen up and asked heffler for his thoughts and heffler rather than just tweet his response like took it and marked it up with just a slew of of thoughts and just little details and, and parts of a B that maybe should be the mirror image of the D uh, you know, like a B and a lowercase B and D and, and other areas where you think like as a kid, you grow up thinking, Oh, a B and a D are just mirror images. Well, sometimes you want them to be, and sometimes you don't. And with explanations of why, you know, maybe you'd want to take a bigger chunk out of this, or you want to have this be curved or this be, I, I found it as a, as a, as a fan of typography who does not have the artistic ability to create typography in any way, shape or form. Like there's no chance that I could make a good looking typeface, none, mm-hmm. but I can appreciate mm-hmm. a, a good typeface. And I, right. I'd like to think at least that I can appreciate the difference between a good typeface and a great typeface. And I found mm-hmm. his markup to be fascinating at, from a typographic level. But then I was also interested in how did he make this mock-up? And he was right. like, of course you would ask. And he said that it on Twitter, Heffler said that uh, he switched, he got an iPad Pro like a year ago and right. took to it. And I forget which app he's using, but it's like, I think it's like PDF Pro, PDF Expert. I, I wanted the third-party PDF mock-up apps. And that it was so good for him that... Uh, he got iPad pros for the entire company and they switched their entire, uh, crit critique process for typefaces from paper to PDFs. And it was all specifically, mm-hmm. it, it never could have happened before the iPad pro and pencil and that they're a loving it. They're way more efficient and B they're saving like 8,000 sheets of paper a day. Right. <laughs> like, right. like an unbelievable, <laughs> I don't know what exactly he said, but it was, you can imagine how many, you know, a company full of type designers who do lots of critiques and, and 
lots of iterations over and over and over again on every letter that they're saving an awful lot of yeah. paper. And they've got now they've got a paper trail of the evolution of a typeface that is electronically, you know, searchable and doesn't need to be archived in filing cabinets or something like that. Anyway, I thought that mm-hmm. was interesting. Yeah, I mean, like as a long time, you know, I mean, I came from I come from a family of artists, and I I never fully went down that path. There was like a brief period where I thought I was going to be a fine artist, um, and I went into I went more into the photographic side of things. But I did take all of the required, you know, drawing classes, uh, 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 life drawing, etc. Um, so you know, I could I could still sketch you a reclining nude if you want one, but the that process of like pencil to paper, the way everybody holds a pencil, every artist holds one slightly differently, different angle, different inflection, and it feels organic and natural to them. And a typical stylus requires that you have a fairly precise, specific angle on it to make it react to the surface in a certain way. And the pencil doesn't. I mean, you, within a certain bounds, you can't go as extreme as you can with a pencil, but you can go a lot more extreme because of the way that they built it and the way, of course, that they built the screen to match it. Whereas most people are working with a fairly standard touchscreen and then mating whatever you know swizzle they can get in a stylus to it to try and make it feel more organic. You know, you've seen the ones with the little discs at the tip so that you could see what's under the stylus and all that. But it's really the hold of the pencil that is the most important thing. And I find it amazing that you can, you know, do a four-finger hold on a pencil and shade and then you can flip it and do a standard um, stylus type hold and so on and so forth. And I think that that organic way that those work, coupled with the very incredibly low latency on the screen, are just selling people on it the moment that they try it or, or, or can figure out a way to work it into their workflow. And I think that if they if Apple can leverage that and use that as a way to say, you don't need touch because you've already got all the touch you need here, I think that you know it could work. It could work. For the yeah. Mac Pro. All right, I've looked it up. I've got it in the show notes, but uh, I've got the whole thread on Twitter of of this typeface critique and the app that Heffler and his well Heffler and company Heffler and his company are using specifically is Notability. Notability, uh, mm-hmm. or is it Notability Pro? No, Notability app, which he describes as the only app that he's ever felt feels like a real pen uh, to him. So anyway, it's a great app. I do have it. Uh, don't really have a need for it like he does, but boy, that's great. And I agree with what you said. I really do. Um, it did come up, though. It came up at the meeting as to whether they were working on touchscreen Macs. I feel like it's it's the question that will never go away. Right. Uh, and Until one day they find out a way to do it, and then everybody says, see? And they're like, well, you know, we were just waiting or whatever. I, I don't think they will. I really don't. I mm. think that they could do it and shut people up, but I feel like mm-hmm. it's a bad idea. Um Let's hold that thought, and I'll explain why I think it. It really is a bad idea, and mm-hmm. I don't think I think some people suspect that it's oh, they know touch is the future, and they just want people to this. It it's all hinges on this theory that they that they quote unquote want everybody to use a MacBook Pro or an iPad Pro, use an iPad Pro, and mm-hmm. so they're starving the Mac of touch screens out of spite to encourage people to buy iPad Pros, which I think is nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's the working theory of the, otherwise it makes no sense why the Mac has no touchscreen. Whereas I think that they're, right. I think what Apple is saying about the Mac and touchscreen is the literal truth that it's a bad combination of form factor and, uh, and UI design. Anyway, let me take a break though. And thank 
our next sponsor. It is Hello, H-U-L-L-O, Hello Pillow. Have you ever tried a buckwheat pillow? They are totally different than the fluffy, soft pillows most of us are used to. It's similar to a beanbag, which allows you to adjust its shape and thickness. I've been using a Hello Pillow. We actually have two of them, one on each side of the bed. Uh, I like mine, and uh, I like it a lot. My wife actually comes back, when we come back from vacations, she actually complains that she actually misses, that's how much she misses her Hello Pillow. We go away for a week, and she's like, oh my God, I'm I, I, she's totally uh, no longer like sleeping on even on a really nice bed without a hollow pillow. Um, we've had it. It's got to be at least a year, maybe longer. Uh, and it's I can't imagine what it was like without it. We really like them. Uh, here's what it's like. It's like a beanbag. It's very heavy for a pillow. Heavy for a pillow, at least. It supports your head and neck how you want it. And unlike traditional squishy soft pillows, which collapse under the weight of your head, hello uh, pillows hold their form. It also stays cool and dry compared to pillows fed with feathers or foam because there's air between these little buckwheat um, uh, husks that are that are sort of are the, the quote-unquote beans in the beanbag. No matter what happens, there remains air in there and it keeps stuff flowing. And so it doesn't get hot. Uh, it's really great. Ours have been, like I said, we've had them for at least a year. They last great. It doesn't seem like it's any different than it was when it was brand new. Uh, it's really great. Do you use two pillows or fold your pillow in an attempt for proper support? Well, that's a sign that your pillow isn't firm or thick enough. Hello Pillows support allows you to keep your head up with just one pillow. Uh, it's very true. It's very different than a regular pillow. You're going to open the box. You're going to say it really is like a beanbag, and you're going to think there is no way that this thing – is actually going to be a good pillow because it is so unlike a traditional fluffy pillow. Here's the deal, though. They're so confident on it, they're going to give you a 60-night guarantee. So go ahead and try it. That's at hello, H-U-L-L-O, pillow.com slash talk show. Just hello dot, hellopillow.com slash talk show. And you'll get 60 nights. And you can just send it back if you don't like it. But you probably won't because you're probably going to like it. Um, here's what you get. With that deal, you get a discount of up to $20 per pillow, depending on the size. You'll find out when you go pick out your size. And you get fast, free shipping on every order. And they even add uh, contribute 1% of all their profits to the Nature Conservancy. So there you go. Next time you need a pillow, check out hellopillow.com slash talk show. My thanks to them for sponsoring the show. Great product. What were we talking about? I always forget. <laughs> <laughs> oh, touchscreen maps. Yeah, touchscreen maps. I get yeah. into it. I get into it. That's the no, secret. I, yeah, I, I get I hypnotized get by my own sponsor. Buckwheat pillows. Yeah. Uh, uh, so think about like the 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 one that, and I'm not saying it's a bad design, but I I feel like the trade offs are too much. So people are you know talking about the the Windows Surface style tablets where the you can dock it to a keyboard part and then you can undock it somehow, and then the screen is a standalone tablet with a separate processor and its own little battery. Um, it is, to me, it's a worse tablet than an iPad because it's, it's, it can't have, it it's not, doesn't have a full-strength processor. The full-strength processor is in the base, but it's, 
so it's worse as a tablet, but it's also worse as a laptop because then the, the screen of the laptop when it's in laptop mode is thicker, especially compared to the new MacBooks and MacBook Pros. Like one of the best little things, and it's like I can write about it, but I don't feel like it's ever convincing to someone until they actually try it for a while, is how much nicer the screen opens on a Mac on the latest MacBook Pros. Like I'm still using as my daily driver, I still have a, a two and a half year old 13 inch MacBook Pro from the previous design. And it still suits my needs because on a day to day basis, the iMac is my main computer. And it's this is, and I max the, what I tend to do with my Macs is when I do buy a new one, I just max it out. I get the fastest and I get the most RAM and I get the biggest SSD and then use it for years until I feel like I really need a new computer and then max one out again rather than upgrade like every year or so to a mid range computer or something like that. Um, I think of everything else on the new, after getting those review units of the new MacBook Pros, the thing that I miss the most isn't the touch bar. And it isn't Touch ID, although Touch ID is close. It's the the way that it opens and closes. This it's so light. The screen is so light and thin, and the hinge is so much better that it's just effortless. It always goes. It just lifts. The base never comes up when you lift it. The base never right. shifts. The floppy when you close base it. thing. The floppy base syndrome was like was always a huge issue for me on well right. airs you know yes. and, and the yes. little macbooks you yeah. ju- i just got used to it. i used an 11 inch macbook air for years and liked it in so many ways and i just had it out recently to 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 do a battery test on it and i still love the form factor when it's closed but opening and closing it is sort of a two-hand operation or a, a, a pinched finger operation because it just like you said, a floppy base. The new MacBook mm-hmm. Pros have the best feel of a laptop opening and closing of any device I have ever seen in my life. But the the part of that though is that the screen part, the part that you move up and down, if you could magically detach that, it's way too thin to be a tablet. It wouldn't have any room for a battery. It's way too thin and light. There's no right. way that that could be a tablet. And if you wanted to turn it into a tablet, you'd end up with a device with a, a totally different balance of weight and and etc cetera, etc cetera. almost inverted really because the yeah. keyboard would be on the bottom and that's it yeah. well and that's it and that has struck me with the ipad pro with a smart key keyboard like i get it if you uh, to me that that configuration of using an ipad with a smart keyboard or or even a third party like a logitech keyboard with a you know click clack keys uh is so top heavy I can see it if 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 your goal is I love my iPad so much that I want to use it for more stuff and I want to use it for writing and so for you know writing I want to have a, a real hardware keyboard. There you know therefore being able to do it and do it with a smart connector for the the ease of you know hooking it up and unhooking it up. That's great, but it's so inferior just as a laptop compared to a, a real MacBook Pro. Like putting the software aside and your preference for iOS over macOS or vice versa, just the art, the action of opening and closing it and putting it away, you can't beat the MacBook Pro with with a tablet that docks to a keyboard, right? It's like you could, you could have your MacBook Pro open, close it, realize you forgot to do one last thing, reopen it, and especially if you're using the Apple Watch to unlock it or use Touch ID, be logged back in before somebody else could close up an iPad Pro and get the smart keyboard folded up. 
It's, mm-hmm. you know, again, I, I'm not saying that, that it means iPad Pro with a smart keyboard or, or a Logitech keyboard is a bad design, but it certainly is a huge trade-off in terms of just just the art of opening and closing the laptop. And so I, I just yeah, don't see it. I, I'm curious to see, so like me, I've had a couple of the Surfaces. I've had the Surface Pro 3 and the Surface Pro 4. Um, and I found them to be, you know, interesting devices that just really got schizophrenic in the software. So like the hardware wasn't, you know, the Surface Pro 3 was okay. The 4 was better hardware-wise, um, not too bad. The software was just super schizophrenic because it was trying to be two things at once. You know, it's trying to be touch and mouse and all of that and mashed into one, which is Apple's constant refrain that they don't want to run into that problem. Right. Um, and I agree, having used, you know, Windows 10 on a Surface Pro 4, it just it still felt really schizophrenic to me, and i I don't think that it's unusable, right? So I think there are plenty of people out there that can get used to it. I am very curious, though. People are saying, "Hey, you know, Surface are, are selling more devices. Obviously, their quarterly reports reports show that they have something there, right? There's something there that people like, and maybe that is the pitch of having the all-in-one, so they don't have to buy a tablet and a computer. You know, that marketing is working, uh, and then people get the devices and they like them enough to keep them, uh, and so that's working. But I'm very curious to see what will happen one generation out when people go." man, how exhausting was using that? You know, how exhausting was this constant being caught in between two worlds? And so I think Microsoft has an opportunity right now, this sort of gap of time where they've got a little traction and it's going well. And so the positive word of mouth is causing more and more people to try that, that paradigm out where they have a chance to figure it out. And maybe they can, right? Maybe they can suss something out and they figure it out. And it's like, oh, wow, this is this really hits the mark. And the Surface Book obviously is a nod to that, um, trying to, they're trying to swizzle, trying to find their their niche to like put that claw in. And that's great. But I think that Apple looks at that and goes, why would we do that when we have these two more pure devices that we feel service just different needs completely? And that's our philosophy. Like hit these nails straight rather than trying to hit the nail in at an angle to try and catch yeah. both boards or whatever. Yeah, you know? and I think it fits with Apple's philosophy of we're not going to we're not going to create enough devices to cover every possible desire. We're going to have a fewer number of devices and and hopefully have them meet almost everybody's needs. And it, it almost comes back to the fact that I I suspect that there might have been an inkling two, two years ago to a year ago where maybe they thought they could even get rid of the Mac Pro and just have iMacs and MacBook Pros. That they were, you know, if anything, I think that they were leaning towards having fewer <laughs> configurations of Macs than adding more by adding something like a, a Surface Studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that gets us. I've I've said this before many times, but it's you know, there's all sorts of things on screen on a Mac that are just are not conducive to touch, just in terms of how big they are. And you know, I've done it, and I know you know. People feel I, I I get a lot of email about this, but uh, I've I've done it myself. I am an anti-screen toucher. I I like to. I generally I will sometimes buy a new MacBook and and it might I might go uh, hopefully many many months before any human being ever touches the the dis- <laughs> display. Right. Yeah, I, I'm a hover hander myself. I don't, and I, I don't like to stab I, my screen. It makes me very nervous. Like people might get nervous. There was a scene in uh, 
The Walking Dead this week, where, where you know, without revealing anything, any spoilers, but there was a character threatening another character by holding a knife very, very close <laughs> to this character's eyeball for for a, a very long time. And if it's, uh-huh. I, I can only if they had to have done it with computer graphics because there's no way they sure. could. It, it, it looked too convincing that this, but it was very nerve wracking to see a character with a knife held right in front of his open eyeball during a threatening situation for a long period of time. That's how I feel when I see somebody reach towards a, a non-touch display with a finger. Right, to try and point at a document or something. Yeah, yeah. I, I get nervous <laughs> when they, as soon as they start pointing. Um, I would rather, it, and the thing is, I my touch phobia with screens goes even further. I would rather not clean it than touch it. Is right. that weird? Yeah, like yeah. I, my screens, like I often ha- have, like I open up my MacBook and go, "Wow, this has has like maybe it's sneeze residue, maybe it's dust. I don't know." Like eventually, it gets bad enough to where you have to clean it. But I'd almost rather not touch it because then I'm afraid I'm going to clean it and it's going to be spudgy at the corners. <laughs> it's I remember just like too, a no-win it, scenario. <laughs> in my days as a graphic designer, I remember I would work with people who were screen touchers themselves. Mm-hmm. This is back in the CRT era, and they right. would, you know, we'd be you know like hey let me show let me show you this what do you think about this and they'd start pointing to the screen and touching it and i'd be like what are you, what are you doing it's your screen why why are you touching your screen um, uh, the big smeary snail trails across it yeah. all right all that said yeah uh af- back when the first ipad pro came out and i had a review unit and and i did what i try to always do is immerse myself in it by doing as much of my computing on it as possible during the review period, including writing the review itself, using it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I was done, like a day later or so, I was using my MacBook Pro, and I went over and I tried to scroll. Uh, I remember exactly which app it was. It was TweetBot. And I think the fact that TweetBot sort of shares a, a aesthetic with the iOS version helped dupe right. me in. I touched my MacBook Pro screen and tried to scroll it. So mm-hmm. I get it. If it happened to me, I could see how it could happen to to more people where they just want to scroll by touching the screen or whatever. But you yeah. can't. It's it's it, and I get it. You it's just, not pretty though. It's just not pretty. Like I mean, yeah. in terms of the, the physical interaction, it's not pretty. I've seen it happen. Like I've I've even been like at events and stuff, and I've seen people with touchscreen, you know, Macs or whatever, and they're hurrying to file that's like a reporter you know and they're hurrying to file their story and they're bashing away and maybe they go to close up or whatever and they're trying to do a couple last things or even if they're like reading news while they're doing it and they're scrolling they reach up and they do this sort of thing where they they're pulling the laptop in and half closing it and using the screen with their thumbs like stuff like that which i look at it and go you know i get it it's kind of nice to be able to have this dual mode thing where you're like clickety clackety clickety clack and then if there's a big touch target and you want to just touch it really quick or perhaps like some some interactions might make sense like swiping on the screen to move an entire desktop space right like that makes a ton of sense to me logically you know philosophically but just going like hunt i've seen them also hunting to try and click buttons that they really should have clicked with the mouse, but the touchpads <laughs> are so shitty on those on those particular computers, or the they don't have a mouse, right? That they're just like, ah, 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 right? And then you know you hit the target wrong because the thumb isn't really calculated to hit it right, and all of this stuff. You know they don't do what Apple does to 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 offset the target. You know all of that. And remember, there's not a predictable angle that they're hitting it from. Right. You know because it's a laptop screen with an with your phone, Apple has 
offset the key targets. So where they're not over the keys, they're actually slightly above the keys because of the parallax, the way you look at it and the way you type on it. And so when people go whack it, they don't realize they're hitting above the key, but it's still hitting the key. And like that kind of thing they can't do because it's unpredictable how people are going to touch them. So I think there's a lot of hurdles that manifest themselves in the weird gymnastics people do when they start actually interacting with those kinds of screens, you know, especially laptops, you whack it and it tilts backwards and flops back down and all this stuff, you know? Right. You'd almost want to build one that probably has more resistance than the current MacBook pros resistance in Mm -hmm. in terms of resistance to, to whether it moves, not, not in the electrical sense. Um, Yeah. Yeah. uh, There's also a, a kind of a fundamental difference between tapping and clicking like when you just if you had a touchscreen mac and you just touch the screen and then start dragging did that touch count as a click and then a drag or is it just mm-hmm. that's just where you start dragging and if you think about that it's totally different both ways but you would want it sometimes you'd want one and sometimes you'd want the other like how how do you differentiate between scrolling in a finder window full of icons and by touching and moving your finger and dragging an icon so you can drag and drop by touching and dragging. It's the exact same gesture. Mm-hmm. You put your finger on the screen and it happens to be on top of an icon and you move it. Does it start dragging or does it start scrolling the view of icons? Mm-hmm. Right? It's There's two things that you want the same gesture to do. And on the with the mouse pointer, it's, it's easily solved because it only does the drag if you click before you move. Uh, it, you know, it's all sorts of problems that open up like that, and it all gets very messy. And I feel like most of the people who are kind of hoping that Apple would do this haven't really thought through any of those issues, and and would be right. at least in some ways would be dissatisfied with the result because they'd re- they would see it as sloppy. Whereas it, it it's really not. It's it, there's no there is no easy solution to it. There's no way to make putting your yeah. finger on the screen and dragging it do both scroll the view and drag and drop the item you know and ios gets away with it by not having drag and drop <laughs> yeah it's just like we're just going to not do that uh yeah and that's the thing they could do by burning it down so to speak right, right. the interface the layer right. um, and there's things like on ios where maybe they're going to do drag and drop because now they're adding the haptic engine and you can yeah, get get right. a touch and drag and a click and drag on the ios but even if you thought well that's then there's your solution for uh macos for touchscreen but now you're making the top of the macbook even thicker than it was already again another mm-hmm. layer of thickness you're adding which is all problematic and if you want to be able to press it hard enough to get a 3d touch you've got to make the you know the hinge has to be even firmer etc 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 i don't want to go down this mm-hmm. route any further but <laughs> i think i think no, it's a bad yeah. idea and i well think it's I, a rabbit hole right it right. really is yes. and you once you start going down it you find yourself mixing metaphors and I think that's that's something that's Apple super allergic to. Like if you have a touch metaphor that works on the the iPad, why would you introduce a completely separate metaphor for the same exact action on a desktop machine? And the answer, of course, the easy answer is, oh, because the desktop's different. But I don't think Apple views it that way. I think they view it, well, if it's different, then why are you trying to like shoehorn this Inter- this interaction methodology onto it, um, and I think that's that's where they they don't want two different answers for what happens when I touch things. You know, they just want one answer, right. and I think that's that's the kind of the the key there. Right, and I feel like the way like part of the brilliance of the uh, original iPhone design was that 
they they had i'm sure entire whiteboards full of these issues to resolve over what happens when you just touch what happens when you drag what happens you know and came up with okay this is what'll happen when you do this this is what you happen when you do that and came up with an overall design that when you presented it to a normal person they didn't realize any of those things had been designed that it all mm-hmm. felt natural that yes this is just you just put your finger on the screen and swipe it and it starts dragging the view and etc cetera, etc cetera. you know you just touch the button and let go and the button is activated right yeah, I don't know. I think they're they're gonna ask uh, walk into a world of hurt if they start saying different things happen when you touch different things simply because they have come so far instructing people right. on the one to one. You right. know, then the one the one to one is like their mantra. You know, it, and it was it's something that they didn't invent, but they did perfect and popularize. And I think that that is you don't want to give up ownership of that by going oh just kidding. That's not actually what we believe. And right. uh, yeah, you're, you're walking into a, a problem there. All right. I don't believe, fundamentally, I do not believe that all computers should be touchscreens. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think most should be. And I think most clearly already are because I think you should count phones as touchscreens or as computers. And overwhelm, I mean, if you combine iPhones and Android phones, it's, you know, it's over, they overwhelm all the other personal computers in use in the world today. Um, mm-hmm. let alone tablets and anything else that might have a touchscreen. But I don't think all should. I think there's a place for yeah. a non-touchscreen uh, mouse and keyboard interface. This kind of... Anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it intersects with the whole other discussion about voice, but that's literally a whole other... That's a whole other thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let me take one last break here and thank our third and yeah. final sponsor. Longtime friends of the show, Backblaze. Backblaze offers unlimited native backup for your Mac or PC. No credit card required to get started. No risk. You get a 15-day free trial at backblaze.com slash daringfireball. All data is backed up. Uh, all data on your computer is backed up. That's how much data is backed up. What do you, you say, well, I not mine. I have a four terabyte external drive. Nope, they'll back it all up. Only hitch is it well, however much data you have to back up on your computer, however long it takes to upload through your home internet or your office internet, it, it just takes longer to get to get the initial backup up there. That's it. That's the only hit. There is no catch. Uh, you pay $5 per Mac per month. Unlimited data. Uh, the software is terrific. It's written, uh, the Mac version is written by former Apple engineers, and it feels like it. it it's seamless in the background. You never notice it running. Uh, you just set it up. And forget it, and it's there. And you get the peace of mind, the wonderful, wonderful. You'll sleep an extra hour a night with the peace of mind of knowing that everything on your Mac that's important is backed up to the cloud. Is it should that be the only way you back up? No, Backblaze will be the first to tell you that. There's a great place in your backflow uh, backup solution for something like Time Machine, uh, something like Super Duper to clone your startup disks so that you have a, a second uh, external drive with a complete clone of your startup disk that you could just switch to and boot from and have go back to. Local stuff is great. It's always going to be faster. Uh, but for when disaster strikes, like if somebody uh, breaks into your house and steals your stuff, or if a uh, pipe bursts in a roof over your office and drips water over all your all your computing equipment, anything that could go wrong that might go wrong locally, having an offsite backup is 
just a tremendous peace of mind and it can be uh, a lifesaver. So where do you go to find out more? I've been using Backblaze for years. I recommend it. I would recommend it if they stopped sponsoring the show, if they stopped sponsoring Daring Fireball. I would still recommend it. Uh, five bucks a month per, per machine. Go to backblaze.com slash Daring Fireball, and they will know that you came here from the show, and you'll, you'll get a 15-day free trial. My thanks to them. I like that, Backblaze. I've been using that for a long time. Yeah, it's a great service. I always forget that I have it running. I really do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, only time I remember is when I restart and I see the little flame icon. Every once in a while, I have an external drive uh, on my desktop that I don't always keep plugged in. It's just, I just call it storage, and it's where I keep all sorts of big-ass stuff, like video and stuff that I don't necessarily want to fill up my, S- my SSD with. And every once in a while, I don't have it plugged in for a while, and they send you a nice little email that says, hey, you know, that, that device hasn't been backed <laughs> up in 21 days or something like that. Right. And that's I'm like, oh yeah, Backblaze is still running. But yeah, exactly. I don't really need to. I don't really need to plug it back in because part of the reason it hasn't been backed up in 21 days is I obviously haven't changed anything. So exactly, yeah. But anyway, yeah, I use Carbon Copy Cloner for local, and then Backblaze for yep for external in case my yep. house burns down. Yep, yep. And then you think, wow, this is good news. My house burned down, but I've, I've <laughs> I get to reset up my computer. It's yeah. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> any nerds will take any excuse to reset up a computer. Oh, <laughs> uh, so all right. One of the points I wouldn't say of contention, but one mm-hmm. of the, the 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 things that we didn't really think about last week during that that meeting in Cupertino was uh, what they what Schiller had said was, "Hey, all right, we're working on a new Mac Pro. Thought up, thought from the ground up. We're working on new Apple branded." displays to go along with them neither you're not going to see either of these products this year and every, i think every single other person at the table heard that and thought okay these things are coming next year uh, mm-hmm. and wow that and 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 sort of in the context of wow apple is telling us about a product that's a year out which is, you know, sort of unprecedented. I guess it's the longest ever. I mean, they've done things like they unveiled the iPhone at Macworld in January and it didn't ship until June. There's That's a six-month lead. Uh, a year is pretty unusual, if not unprecedented. Um, but I had that in my story at at least one point where I used the phrase, quote-unquote, next year, and I got pinged the next morning uh, from someone at Apple PR just to clarify that Apple didn't say next year they did not say next mm-hmm. year either. They just said not this year, and that there's a there's right. obviously a subtle difference between not this year and next year, which is that in theory, it might not come until 2019. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nobody from Apple reached out to me like proactively like that, but I did look at my when I was looking at the, through my transcript just to you know kind of re- make sure I got everything right and all that. I I realized that. Nobody did. I, um, I think it was Lance kind of mentioned twice, hey, you know, right. these things that are coming next year, blah, 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 you know, just as yes. a lead into another question. And there was no pushback. Right. So I think that's kind of where my brain clicked over. Oh, okay, fine. They didn't push back against these, but it was a conversation. So I didn't expect them to necessarily push back against every little thing, or maybe they were just waiting for the point of the question, right? And they didn't, you know, they, they slipped their mind or whatever. Um, well, but yeah, I, I, I nowhere in that did, it, did they specify next year so that makes sense and i don't think that it means that it won't come next year maybe it will 
But I also think that they want to leave themselves wiggle room in case they can't get it done. And then it's first quarter the year after, or second quarter the year after. You know what I mean? I can't fathomably yeah. see it being three years from now. But no. I definitely think that they did not want to commit to you know, exactly 18 months from now, no longer kind of thing, you know? I think it's, I, 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 at first I was a little alarmed by it, but then I thought, you know what? I think it's just, it's just not, it's their institutional resistance to talking about stuff in the future and making any promises at all. And, and their sort of desire to under promise and over deliver. I can't help but suspect that internally, they certainly are shooting for next year, if not early Mm -hmm. next year. I, I can't help but think that, but that they know that Murphy's Law can hit and that they might spend six months pursuing path X and decide, nope, we need to backtrack and go down path Y instead, and now we're six, we've are six, we lost six months, that that can happen with the product. Um, but given the fact that they're hitting this reset button on a what's now four-year-old computer, or almost four, coming on four, but let's call it three, I guess because it shipped at the end of, of 2013, a, a Let's be generous and call it a three and a half year old computer. Um, uh, that they're doing this now and saying it's still going to take at least a year. Uh, that that's a pretty long time for the world's most <laughs> most successful, profitable <laughs> company that specializes in making computers to make a computer right. that should be at a basic level fundamentally similar to you know high end intel based workstations you know that, that part of this is isn't you know it's not like they're designing their own i we at least we think they're not designing their own cpu to go with this <laughs> right you know that and you know and on the flip side of that and I want this is what I want to hear your thoughts about is is part of the pushback i got from my article was specifically about this it's not coming this year and and the pushback I heard was from people, who, readers and listeners of the show, who are obviously frustrated at the Mac Pro, who didn't take this announcement as the good news that I took it as, because my biggest fear, like I said, going in was that they were going to say we're not going to make a Mac Pro anymore. Right, like nothing at all. Right. Right. That's my. <laughs> that was my bad news, and my good news scenario is the the Mac Pro is coming, but it's not coming for a while. And I sure. thought that that was the good news because if the, the, the in theory good news would be we have a new Mac Pro and here it is, or we have a new Mac Pro and it, it's coming at WWDC, they wouldn't have had the meeting. They would have just either shown had an event and shown it or they would have waited until June. They could have at least waited that long and then it's shown it. I think right. the fact that it couldn't even be shown in June meant that they needed to do something like this. And so I knew that going into the meeting that there's no way they're going to show it to us. You know, it can't be coming soon. So the best possible case would be that they say to us, you know, it's coming at the end of the year. I thought would maybe be the ideal case. Um, mm-hmm. But what I heard from people was, God damn it. Why can't Apple just <laughs> take a motherboard from Intel and some high end NVIDIA graphics cards and put them in a goddamn box and sell it to me. <laughs> right? How long right. can it take? To, right. How long can it take to make a nice two new, 1080i's aluminum case done? <laughs> right. You know, give Johnny Ives team a month to make a nice looking box and ship the goddamn thing. And I wonder what you what you think about that. Like, what is it that they're doing that's going to take them uh, at least a year? Added to however long they've already been working on 
on this, which right. seems to be at least six months, probably a little more, but at least six months since I, I think they flipped the switch and said full speed ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I keep going back. To, it's like almost like haunting me now when they're saying like, you know, if we're going to do anything, we want to make sure that it's innovative and that, it, you know, it's not the same old thing. And I think, I think that it's fine. Like the best case scenario of that is iPhone. Um, you know, I don't know what that could be. There's two things that stick in my mind, completely unrelated to Apple. Well, not not completely, but you know, sort of unrelated to Apple that 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 sound intriguing. Uh, one of the reasons I asked, you know, what's your feeling on external GPUs was that was my assumption of what the Mac Pro was because I had heard a little bit before the Mac Pro was announced. You know, these things start to come up in conversation as you have them. Nothing I could put together really solidly, but I'd heard, you know, it's a little blob of a machine and they're going to focus on peripherals, which is essentially what they were trying to do. But the peripherals never really materialized because of Thunderbolt issues and all that stuff. You know, in terms of the, the vast array of them, they thought were going to accompany this thing. But the peripheral that I was really focused on in my mind was an external GPU. So it's saying, hey, like this is what we launched today. We think it's going to be great for most people's computing needs, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then, you know, in six months, we're going to have a partner like NVIDIA or AMD, obviously, who they work very closely with, uh, who has an external GPU you can plug in and it'll handle your rendering tasks and run your games. And you just pick which GPU you're going to use and boom, right? And you can just do that. And this that way, this little blob of a machine lives on your desk for for five years, eight years, 10 years, and you get the newest GPU and plug it in. And as long as the IO doesn't change, you know, we don't have some massive change in shift in IO, which will happen every five to eight years, whatever, then you're good. You're golden. And you're going to be able to keep using this for the GPU intensive tasks that you have. And that was my thought originally for it. I was obviously too aggressive in the way I was thinking about it. I guess one way to put it. I think um, Apple was too, though. I do. Well, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess so. But not in that way, right? In a different way, in a different direction right. completely. Um, so I, my thinking is like, maybe that's the answer. Maybe that they figured out like, hey, maybe external GPUs are the thing. And they can go to NVIDIA and say, hey, build us uh, a, a GPU or an accessory that people plug their GPUs into, and then we don't have to worry about it. But that doesn't, it doesn't seem right to me. Right, because like then they would be doubling down on their current shape and form factor, and I don't think that they would be doing that if they they brought us in to have this the whole discussion. Yeah, I. But he, the the answer was unambiguous, though. You asked, you know, what would you guys see a future for external GPUs, and and I think it was Federighi who answered unambiguously, yes. You know, we see a place yeah. for external GPUs. It was very short, yeah, very sweet. There was no They're interesting. Preamble. And then Turnus, I yeah. think, said, for some applications, absolutely. For others, no. Which is another way right. of saying, yeah, it doesn't work always, but does work sometimes. Right. But not and no. I, not, those are terrible. Terrible idea, like touch. Right. 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 Uh, right. And that was like a long discussion about why they're no, no, why they're not, you know, of all the, you know, a lot of the questions they wouldn't give a yes or no to, but they gave a no to touch. And it was, it wasn't just no, it was no. And it was a long discussion, but the external GPU was yes. And so for some cases, um, I think the other thing that they were pretty unambiguous about is that the new Mac pro has to be able to support a big honking internal GPU. 
that whatever you might do as a, a, a niche within a niche that would require external GPUs, fundamentally this machine has to accommodate a big honking GPU that's there all the time and can, can mm-hmm. get pretty, can do things that'll make it hot and have the heat dissipate. Um, I thought that was pretty unambiguous too. Um, there was, so the other trend besides the external GPUs, I'll just interject this. I don't, I don't know why uh, this is tickling my brain, but there's there are types of computers. Obviously, the people who build PCs are very familiar. You know, you have like the full size ATX case, right, which is your yeah. big case, and then you have mini ATX, a micro ATX, so on and so forth, right? Basically, smaller and smaller cases, and at some point, the, you have to get like a smaller motherboard, a motherboard that's meant specifically to conserve space, and maybe it doesn't have as many RAM slots, or maybe it doesn't, you know, have as many uh, creature comforts or whatever. Uh, And it shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. But there are, there are miniature pre-built computers called nukes or Hmm. nucs that are, Microsoft has a very popular one where if it's like you need, you you know, you need somebody who needs a computer, but they don't really need anything special. They just buy a nuc, right? It's like 250 bucks and boom, you get yourself a computer, plug a monitor in and you're good. Um, And then there's other ones that are about, um, really about like fitting really robust graphics cards into tiny cases, like really small cases. And some of these PC, and I'll have to look it up once again, I don't have it at my fingertips, but some of these cases are essentially an excuse for a graphics card, right? They just, they wrap around the graphics card. The motherboard is specifically designed to fit inside the case as small as possible. And the thing looks like a bread loaf, Right. <laughs> and it's just it's all about the GPU, right. and and it's for gamers who want the power but don't want to sacrifice the space. And I think VR and to a lesser extent AR are driving this this uh, sort of category where you've got a person who wants to do VR and maybe they want to port it around and go to groups to you know go to their friend's house and bring it or whatever. Like these evangelists, VR evangelists pushing the thing forward, and gamers who want the le- latest bleeding edge. You know, thing like hundred thousand VR headsets or so have been sold so far. So you figure hundred thousand users—that's enough for some case manufacturer to go, "Hey, let me build this specialty case." Right. right. Um, and I think for me, it makes a, a ton of sense. Like, I love it. I love the idea because, like, if I travel between cities and I want, which I do often, and I want to bring my VR kit, I can pack my headset and my cords into a relatively small bag. But then I got this big old tower computer that runs this thing. And that sucks, right? right? And and a laptop sort of runs it, but it won't run it really well. It won't run it like an NVIDIA high-end 1080 or right. you know high-end AMD card well. And so there's something about that. It's like maybe that you're thinking like, well, heck, if this is the future, let's lean into it, right? Let's honor the the shape and the the power and the the desire to slot these things in here and just build a case that accommodates two full size graphics cards and uh, up to four SSDs and that's it <laughs> you know what I mean I don't know you know it, it's like same kind of ideas but leaning in a different direction I and think, I just don't know if they do that or if they go full on like bunch of space I think VR is is an interesting topic to combined with this discussion of the Mac Pro and and the most powerful possible graphics you can get running on an Apple device today, but not in the obvious first level uh, scenario of, Hey, in the current world, Mac users can't run VR in a mass market way. 
or can't do it well, and that things like the Oculus don't even support it because there's no graphics card that's up to their specs, et cetera, et cetera. I think from Apple's perspective, that's not really relevant, and I think that they're correct that it's not relevant. That mm-hmm. the ultimate match market way for Apple to do VR or AR is to create a standalone device with a... This is what Apple does. So when they go to a new form factor, they create a new, an entirely new interface that is meant to be optimal for that form factor. And so mm-hmm. from Apple's perspective, the right way to do VR is to bide your time and wait until the technology can be put into a desirable product that you just put over your eyes and you've, you're using their new VR product and it's running a VR OS. Um, but in the meantime, pro users have a need to do VR now, not a consumer users for playing games and, and stuff like that. That's not really Apple's purview. But um, like, I can totally see like why Sony has it. We have one in the house. The kid has it. Uh, you know, has a VR headset that runs right now, and and people mm-hmm. you know can play games, and it's kind of cool and immersive. Right. Um, but at a professional level, somebody's got to make the VR stuff and somebody's got to do the work. And if you assume that Apple, just think about Apple's own needs internally is, you know, it's widely rumored that Apple has teams working on VR and especially AR. Apple's even said publicly that they're interested in augmented reality. Um, mm-hmm. They, what are the, what are Apple's engineers inside the company using to do these things that is so super? Right. Right, exactly. Right? Like if they're gonna, I mean, I know for fact, obviously, that they're working on AR and VR. Who would, you know, they'd be dumb not to. And they have these teams of people, you know, poking and prodding at it from different varying angles, trying to figure out: is this the right way to go? Is that the right way to go? Do we build glasses? Do we build this thing? Do we build the other thing? Like, what the hell are they using? Right, Macintoshes, probably. I have heard. <laughs> I don't know. You in, know, in recent weeks, both both after from a couple people after last week's news broke and and you know our stories hit um but even in the weeks leading up to this as i've you know after i linked to a thing about a video editor who who longtime mac user who's reluctantly moving to windows um just just because the gpu situation didn't meet his needs on mac um mm-hmm. I heard from people within Apple, little birdies, um, just saying, like, yeah, it's in some ways it's a shit show, and that there have been, you know, people in Apple who are like, I don't even know what to do. Should I try to requisition the Linux box? And <laughs> it, you know, is that even going to, you know, because it's like Apple's not even set up for things like that to go through, like for an engineer to right. to ask for non-Apple hardware, but that it, you know, um, you know, just. Uh, different needs within the company. I mean, but AR, I didn't hear from anybody working on AR, but I heard from somebody who's working at Apple with large data sets, let's say, and that uh, there, there is no Apple computer that actually is state-of-the-art for, for the needs of their work, mm-hmm. which is a really weird situation <laughs> for Apple to no, be No, it really is. Like, I'd love to see the POs. All right, you it know, goes like, back what to... What are they ordering? <laughs> what it reminds me of is, I forget the exact details of the story but the at in the early days like 1983 or 84 or so like when the original mac was getting on the cusp of launching they had a they bought a cray to to do certain supercomputing needs you know for the development of the mac um which made total sense because you know supercomputers were totally different things from personal computers where supercomputers were at least by the standards of the day the fastest possible computers money could buy and they would cost like a million dollars or something like that and a personal computer was supposed to cost $2,000 or $2,500 or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. 
And, you know, obviously it was only ran a fraction of the power. But in recent years, you know, at, at least certainly for the entirety of the Mac OS ten era where, you know, it was a Unix workstation, you know, <laughs> you didn't need to go outside the company to buy a right. Unix workstation. Uh, right. And, you know, and they run into all sorts of problems where it doesn't, you know, you, you'd really have to go down the, ha- like you said, the Hackintosh route, because just buying a Linux box to do this doesn't let you run Xcode and your stuff might require Xcode in particular, not just any C compiler or whatever. So mm-hmm. it's, it, you know, and then it just think of anybody outside the company who's working on VR and AR and stuff for the future where it becomes a much more mass product, market product. Well, the, the work is being done today that's laying the groundwork for the future where AR and VR are mass market technologies that everybody just sort of takes for granted. Like we take for granted touchscreens and, and everything else down the chain. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. That work is going on today and it really is not suited to the Mac pro. Yeah. And it is, I mean, the people that are at some point you have to think to yourself, okay, the people that are shaping the future of computing, what tools are they using? Like the shovels are incredibly important. I mean, in in the startup community, you know, you always have this. I mean, it's you know, tech in general, but startups especially, yeah, you have this philosophy that you know you'll hear VCs or entrepreneurs talk about, where they say, you know, build the shovels, right, or invest in the shovels, because in the end, everybody needs a shovel. You gotta you gotta dig the hole, you gotta pour the foundation, and build your thing on top of it. But if you're the shovel maker, everybody needs a shovel. Right? right, and at some point, either the shovel gets acquired by somebody who's like, "I really need this particular shovel," or it gets widely used. In either case, is a, you know a major minor success scenario for a startup, and it just goes to you know it leads into this line of thinking. Apple, for many years, they built the shovels, right? They built the what what you would use, what you would launch your thing on, and build your thing on top of. But they also built the shovels, and they still are a shovel builder to a degree. But you know, with Xcode and with you know the MacBook Pros and all and IMAX, as they said, more and more people are using that for things like software development and whatnot. But if they are, if they want to maintain this hold on being the shovel builder, so people buy the shovels and they build on top of your platform with your shovels and all of that, which has been a major component of Apple's success with the iPhone and everything else then you've got to go, okay, well, what's the next big platform and what are the shovels for that platform? You know, if AR and VR are in fact, you know, a big component of the next era of computing um, and it's not something else, then you, where, where are your shovels for those people? And right now they don't have any, you know, or they have some that sort of work, but are not really the ideal shovels. So no major swath of those people are really going to consider it right now. Hmm. Uh, totally agree with that. And I think that's sort of what they tacitly acknowledged last week, which was, you know, it was sort of a dual emphasis. It, it was conflicting where it was, well, maybe not conflicting, but they they strongly emphasized that the needs of most of their pro users are met by the current MacBook Pros and iMacs, and even more so in the near future as the new MacBook Pro form factor gets improved and with the iMacs that they emphasized include, quote, pro configs. Um, but they realized that for, what was the phrase? A, a small single digit of their users, uh, 
which I think means one percent. Uh, but they didn't want to give an exact number. But for yeah, it's got to be close to that. If, if it's not, not exactly. one, it's close yeah. to one. But it's let's say a small single digit of their users. Uh, they they need something else, and they're committed to building that for them. Uh, they get it, you know, and that they clearly, obviously, had their eye off the ball in recent years on that that segment of the market. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's like everything is so much more open and rapid now. I think, yeah. I mean, I'm casting about a little bit here for why, but I think that software development is a completely different ball game now. You know, where it used to be you had pipelines that were being built and, and legacy pipelines that, that sort of evolved into newer pipelines, right? And now you have sort of pipelines having to be created out of whole cloth within years, you know, a couple of years versus pipelines that evolved over decades. And yeah. I think that there's something there too, where it's, yeah. It's so quick. You have to like readjust your your frame of reference, you know, yeah. and how fast you got to move on these things and provide those those tools for people. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's that. Uh, on a meta level, I don't know if you had anything else you want to talk about, but the the other thing I wanted to talk about was the meta level of the of our our uh, afternoon in Cupertino uh, was the campus itself. Like one thing, it was at the old campus. It was in a, a really old building across the street from One Infinite Loop across De Anza Boulevard uh, in this sort of nondescript old California-style single-story office building. Uh, they did treat us to lunch at the new Cafe Max, which I didn't even know existed, uh, which is sort of... Uh, Cafe Alves, they call it. Cafe Alves, uh, mm-hmm. which is a beautiful new building. I mean, it, it it's... Uh, it really impressive architecture. So it's it. What struck me about the fact that the Cafe Alves is so nice. It's all brand new. It's got I, I don't know quadruple height ceilings. I mean, it's truly a, a huge space. Really nice fit and finish, but also looks very new. It looks like new Apple. You know, it, a lot of Apple's campus is obviously very old and sort of still. I mean, predates. I mean, the whole One Infinite Loop campus really predates the return of Steve Jobs, and the architecture really kind of looks like it. Um, yeah, but that they've made this very modern new current Apple cafeteria on the old campus, which just emphasizes what we've been hearing, which is that, yes, they're opening this massive new spaceship campus this year. Uh, but that they're not abandoning any, any of their previous office space. They're just bursting at the seams right now. Headcount. <laughs> yeah. They're going to fill the new headquarters and still be full at both, which is, there's some sort of bigger on the inside thing happening there. I don't yeah, know. well, they still saw the need to build this massive new cafeteria. Or, I mean, cafeteria is right. the wrong word, but cafe, I guess. But um, I thought that was pretty interesting. And then we somebody asked during the event uh, about whether people on their teams were moving in had moved into the new campus yet. And and it was another one of those topics where for whatever reason, Apple does not want to talk about it. They, they do not want to talk about who has moved into the new campus, <laughs> who hasn't and when anybody is moving in. Did you get that sense that they were just like, yeah, yeah. There's, Oh, I mean, you know, a couple of times they were like, Hey, you know, it's like, we don't mind asking, but we really want to talk about the Mac, blah, blah, blah. Right. And that was one of them. And yeah, they definitely are not interested at all in talking about how many people have moved, which, departments have moved which right. departments are moving you know all of that yeah and i i don't know what state it's in i really don't i mean i've watched those flyover videos every once in a while and you can see you know that it certainly is 
ever closer to completion and that you know like landscaping is probably the last thing to be done and it's probably the biggest thing remaining but uh you know for whatever reason it was clearly not never never on the table that that last week's meeting was going to be held on the new campus even though if you would have told me a year ago that we'd be having a uh interesting roundtable discussion uh at the very end of march was it the yeah it was the very end of or was it the beginning of april i guess it was the beginning of april yeah it was april 4th yeah, yeah. uh in april 2017 i would have thought ooh, i'll bet that's on the new campus yeah no i think they're still trying to get everybody's uh work table set up yeah <laughs> <laughs> hide the lg logos on their on their 5k right. displays I'm trying to move the routers further away from the lg monitor <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about before we wrap up? No, I mean I think that covers it. I think yeah. I think it was an interesting discussion. I think it was very interesting to hear them say I'm so- we're sorry twice yes. Yes. to the community which uh come you know honestly there there there's one aspect of this where people are like, yeah, well Apple's arrogant, they never say they're sorry, which is not totally true. They have apologized for things. Um but there's also an enormous amount of responsibility that a corporation you I mean you have to think about it this way strategically. There's an enormous amount of responsibility that a corporation takes on when they say I'm sorry, because they're admitting some sort of culpability. And now this is not like a consumer harm scenario, really. Uh, I mean, I'm sure somebody will try to make an issue of it, right, at right. some point. But that's that's not for me to to determine. I'm no I'm no legal analyst in that regard. But it it's a big statement for the biggest company on earth to say we're sorry you know, twice in a, in an on the record discussion like that and not, you know, try to crib it or, yeah. or, con, you know, beyond contextualizing it, of course, and trying to like paint but, a picture uh, about why it happened. Oof, and that's oof. like a, you know, that's a pretty ball, like, ballsy thing to do, I think. For, for a product that is not a disaster, it's a disappointment. It is something mm-hmm. that they were rightfully proud of when it right, came out. Right. Like there's, this is not a situation where where heads should roll or something like that. And you know, we can laugh about Schiller's can't innovate anymore. My ass. It it's. I mean, it's a whole maybe a whole different discussion. But we, I don't think we need to argue it. Is that it was innovative. It just was the wrong direction for innovation. But it was truly an innovative design. Uh, and to apologize for disappointing people for that, I think, is different. As I say, compare and, compare and contrast with this week's United Airlines fiasco, where it took them 36 hours to <laughs> to apologize for what was literally a disaster. Where Yeah. 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 Where where they issued well, right. Well, right before we started recording, they issued a press release that was pretty good, I think. But should have been the press release they issued thirty six right. hours well, right. ago. It's pretty good, but right now it's like it has no impact it has no impact whatsoever. Right. Like, too late. You know. Thirty six like, hours. It's like shooting somebody and then like offering them a band aid and being like, Oh man, sorry about that. Right. You're like, dude, I already have a bullet hole in me. Well, <laughs> PR is the, the analogy to fires is often used with PRs that it's a you know it's, mm-hmm. it's put out the put out the fire as the job PR does but it's a really I think it's a really good analogy and at at when the story first leaked that this poor fellow on the flight had had been bloodied while they forcibly removed him and and disoriented and and had a really bad experience it it was bad it was a fire but it was like a trash can fire. <laughs> And they let it. <laughs> yeah. They let it turn from a trash can fire into a house that had been burned down fire, which uh-huh. which can you know like real fires happens very quickly. 
It's just why you need, you know, PR professionals need to be quick thinking and, and ready to go. And United certainly blew that. Um, but anyway, it just comes to mind when it comes to apologies that there's a big difference between apologizing for a man who's been beaten to a bloody pulp and apologizing for a rather uh, subtly disappointing years long dawdled down the wrong path of the future of pro hardware engineering. And I thought it was pretty right. telling. Something that was ultimately well executed, but served the wrong needs. Right. I thought yeah. that was pretty interesting. And I thought it was, it, it filled me with, I think that they've got this. I think they've, I think they lost a handle on this and didn't quite realize they had, but now they've got a firm handle on it again. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Hopefully. Matthew Panzerino, we can, uh, we can read your fine writing and that of your staff at uh uh what's the name of the site uh tech crunch tech crunch tech crunch uh it's a new up-and-coming site on yeah, the internet and fresh. uh and on twitter you are at panzer did i get it right p-a-n-z-e-r that's it that's it it's a fine fine twitter account where you have a very very good commentary on on the day's events my thanks to you